Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Off the Cuff, another production of Peak Prosperity. I am your host, Chris Martinson. Today, very excited to have Peter Bogosian back, Professor Peter Bogosian. And today we're going to be talking about culture, culture war, and why some of these things that have been going on lately have been so damaging. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Peter, it's so good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Chris. It's been it's been far too long since uh, since we've ha had a conversation with each other, so I appreciate it. But far too long. So um, I've been having this conversation a lot. So as you know, I, you know, I, I parsed through COVID a lot because that's my background, not what we're talking about today, because what I really am concerned with is all the things that were done in the name of COVID, but we're seeing them in reflections in other places, places I know you have been looking at very carefully, very completely. But let's start here. Peter, I've lost friends. I've lost colleagues. I've lost it happens all the time now in my tribe. People report the same thing and we lose people. I think because we dare to ask a question that somebody didn't want asked, or we were curious in some way, or worse, we have data that conflicts with something this other person wants to hold. And right. it's really damaging. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that for us. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I, I, have been struggling with this myself. I, I, I don't know if I'm oversharing. <laughs> let, me, let me know if I'm oversharing, but I've just, my, my personal life has not been going too well, to be blunt. I am, um, I have now lost so many friends because of this culture where people, no, actually people I used to consider my friends, people have been in my home, people have sat at my dinner table and I've, to, to a person, I've asked them to have a conversation about this. I'd love to have a car. I'd love to figure out what our difference is, why you're upset. And not a single person, this is what is fascinating to me. Not a single person, Chris, has accepted my invitation for conversation. Instead, they have sniped at me on social media. They have sent me these weird, bizarre, almost Dear John notes. Like, I, I can't... I. It, so I, I've been thinking about this a lot because, again, to be very blunt with you, it's been deeply disturbing to me, given that I know these people. I mean, these aren't random people from the Internet. And the, the common characteristic, the common qualities, they will not have a conversation with me about whatever is on their mind. And I cannot think of any other time in my life, and I'm not saying it's not a cyclical historical phenomenon or what have you, but I cannot think of another time in my life where... I've either lost so many friends so quickly or uh, that nobody will speak to me about it. So I have my hypotheses about why this is. Uh, let me just throw this out. If I'm talking too much, tell me. But I was originally thinking that there was something embedded within the ideology, which is actually true when you read the literature, and I've read a, a lot of literature, that they don't value dialogue, dialogue discourse, conversation. And I threw that idea out to, I'm sure you know James Lindsay, my, my writing partner. I threw that idea out to him. He said, no, that's not really it. What it is is that they're so afraid to be considered conservative. And talking to you is a kind of pollution. It's a, it's a kind of social pollution. And I said, but, but I'm not a conservative. I mean, I consider myself a classical liberal. I guess you could call that a conservative in a weird kind of way. But his response was the paranoia of being considered conservative and the moral pollution that comes from that affiliation or that association overrides any willingness to have a conversation, even in private, because if it gets out, it's basically straight Maoism, Chris, is what it is. I'm not saying that's, well, that's just an explanation. I, I think it is. And, and by the way, um, I, I've, um, 
I've really become a huge fan of, of James Lindsay along the way. And, and he won me over with his EU parliament discourse, which was just 30 brilliant minutes. It was great. Where he just framed it in a way I was like, oh, well, there it is. And, and so really there there is a revolution going on. And I love that concept that the capital they're coming after is your intellectual capital, your social capital, all of that. So what you're describing here is does that map in where the idea is that they're afraid to speak out because they might lose something. It certainly as a factory could get bombed in World War II, you could lose all of your social capital like that. That sounds terrifying to me, by the way, yeah. to live in yeah. that world. Yeah, it is. And I don't know if you've followed what's going on in China. Again, I'm not a China expert, but if you if it, if you read the material of what's going on with ESG scores, et cetera, you can't get a taxi. You can't buy food unless you have a certain social credit score. And to get that credit score, you have to basically toe the party line. You have to say the right things. You don't what they want you to do is to believe the right things, but they they can only evaluate you discreetly on your words. They don't know what you actually believe, but the, they're coming for a kind of cognitive liberty. That's, I mean, it's, it really is straight up Maoism. There's just no other way to, it's a totalitarian system in which the goal is to have everybody believe the same thing and viciously throw other people out of society if they don't abide by their norms and rules and regulations. Now, I've been struggling with this for quite a while to understand it, and uh, so I've been groping from a number of directions. Uh, but it was a couple of years ago when I first interviewed Matthias Desmond, he talked about this concept of mass formation, which is that people in a mob behave differently than individuals. It was like, what, in, in Men in Black, remember? Um, you know, the statement was, oh, no, 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 people are smart. Persons are smart. People are dumb herd animals, you know, or whatever. So there's something in the collective that is the mob. Right. So when when the mob, some sort of carrier wave of 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 human behavior takes over, um, that's what I've seen happen. And yes, it was in the context of covid, which I've talked a lot about, but but I've seen it happen around other subjects, Ukraine, yeah. um, the gender stuff, you name it. Right. And, and it has the same flavor to me, which is that because um, Matias said there are two things that, that stuck out for four conditions for mass formation, but two stuck out in this conversation. But one of them was that the more insane the thing you're supposed to believe in, the more power it actually has. Correct. And that's where I've had trouble trying to cross a line because I pride myself in saying there's over always overlap in the Venn diagram. I can always find common ground. Peter, I've run into people I can't find common ground with on some subjects. Yeah, I'll give you one. Um, if you look at that literature, it's very interesting that literature and the adjunct literature about the bystander effect, about people standing and, and, and watching. But I'll give you an example of that. It's the, uh, the quote-unquote transing of children. The, uh, as Abigail Schreier says, the irreversible damage that we do to children that we should just accept their self-reports of gender and then act on that. And I was just writing about that. That That is just such a ghastly, that is an incommensurable difference. I don't know... I just don't know what the compromise on that could possibly be from double mastectomies for, for girls as young as 13. I'm just not willing to compromise on that. I guess if there's any compromise, it's not really a compromise, but you know, the day of your 18th birthday, you're welcome to mutilate yourself, but, but, but they won't consider that a compromise. The, the, um, so I don't know. I, I, I do, I do want to say when dealing with those issues, oh, and that's what we spoke about last time on how to have impossible conversations. 
the greater the gulf, the greater the gap in the belief, the greater the divide, the more important it is that you listen. But that presupposes that the other person actually wants to talk to you. And if someone doesn't want to talk to you, there's literally nothing you can do about it. I mean, what, you're going to hit him in the head with a, you know, and then chain him to a chair and have a conversation. No, like, so the assumption going into all of this is that the person with whom you're, or you, you find some kind of a difference, they don't even have to be sane, but they just have to be willing to converse. So if you, okay, so back to the literature again. Oh, but does that make sense first? Well, it, it, it does. And so, you know, this idea that there's that the idea itself gains its power from it's how insane it is to, to use a term, but but just, you know, how out of alignment with reality it is. But I can't think of anything more profound than a parent engaging in a line of thinking that permanently harms their child. Now, listen, Peter, I'm a fan of anything. I'm a fan of progress. Listen, you got a product out there. You make a better cup of tea. You've got a better tire. It, it's an idea that makes people happier, more fulfilled. I'm all about it. I peer into this from where I look. The statistics are horrifying. These people are not happier. And sometimes they're traumatized. And sometimes this leads to suicide. And sometimes it leads to murder, suicide. It like it has a very, like I'm, I'm looking at this going, where's the data to say this is really beneficial and it's an awesome improvement? Do we have okay. that data? Okay. No, no, it doesn't exist. So a couple of things, if you want to look at, if, if your guests want to learn more about this, um, uh, or your viewers, excuse me, they should go to Colin Wright has some wonderful stuff about this and Helen Joyce mm -hmm. has some great stuff about this. So there are mm -hmm. resources out there where that are available to people who have written and, and spoken extensively about this. And this is not in my domain of expertise This is adjunct to my domain of expertise at it as it falls under the broad rubric of critical social justice ideology. So there is no evidence for this. There was a great book on the Tavistock Clinic in London just that just come out. Andrew Doyle is another really important voice in his book, The New Puritans, mm. is fantastic. Um, th there is no evidence for this because there, there's nothing in the brain. There's no way to test for this. And so you need a different kind of a tool and the tool is people self-reporting. And so it, when children self-report something, the consequence of that is you have to believe them. You know, th just think about believe all women. You have to assume that that young children know their quote unquote gender identity, which is so insane in a number of ways because it's clearly a social contagion. It doesn't affect older women, for example, in their 40s, 50s and 60s. It has a clustering effect of younger uh, women. Uh, Girl, excuse me, actually not even women, uh, of girls. My daughter said something very interesting to me. She, or my daughter's friend said, there are people at my school, this is, uh, um, I've moved out of Portland, but she's at a school in Portland, who pretend to be trans to fit in. Mm. Uh, and the number of, at Brown, for example, the number of people who self-identify as LGBTQ++ and um, whether or not the T should be in there or something else, uh, the, those numbers are astonishingly high, over 50%. If you parse out bisexual, that that number, for women, that number drops rather significantly. But it's clearly a social contagion. It's clearly being backed up by the ideological capture of mainstream institutions, venerable institutions, legacy institutions, not just the media. The academy is completely ideologically corrupted. It's been captured. AMA has been captured, nature has been captured, major academic journals have been captured. I happen to know a thing or two about that. So 
uh, from the mm. grievance studies affair. <laughs> you do indeed. Yes. So you're dealing, you're dealing with, I wouldn't call it an intractable problem, but it's almost intractable when every mm. feature of society upon which we de depend to have knowledge and information has been taken over by an invasive parasitic ideology. Well, and, and it's, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you go mentioned, ahead. well, all these institutions. So I was prepping for this and I look around and, and uh, you know, I go to Planned Parenthood, the Mayo Clinic, Duke, UCSF, like they all have programs, right? And, and in there, so I'm medically trained, I'm horrified at the lack of disclosure they're giving because they say, oh, here's some risks, here's some benefits, here's some things to right. think about. But all of them are just like, to get started, talk with your healthcare provider about how you get on these hormones if you want to start down that path or whatever, right? Um, and I'm thinking, you mean my doctor? You mean the person who has five minutes for me? You mean the person who maybe has never studied this at all? You mean the person who doesn't know, frankly, many doctors don't know a lot about a lot and COVID sure revealed that, right? You know, it's just like, how is this my authority in this topic? But second of all, the barrier just seemed to be, oh yeah, just, you know, just come on in, you know, we'll, we'll start you down this path. And then I was looking at the risks right here, Planned Parenthood. If you start estrogenic therapy reversible 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 they're going down all these little these little things here like oh you know you're gonna like if you're taking female hormones you know you're, you're gonna grow breasts you're, you're you're gonna lose facial hair you know things reversible reversible possibly reversible irreversible one of these that's just your testes shrinking you know what could what's the problem um but but still to the i can tell you from a from a biological standpoint this is indefensible when you start somebody down it particularly if they're in in the pubescent stage when they take hormones, they put their path on a new trajectory that's permanent. That's just how that works. Because if you don't develop the bone mass, if you're if your vocal cords deepen, if you're on that side of it, whatever it is, like they're making it sound like, oh, you know, it's just you could try this out. But if it doesn't work out, it's reversible. I don't believe this is accurate. So let me let me not push back, but let me tell you a problem. So do you remember when you said that, oh, you know, you get five minutes with the doctor, you can't really talk to your doctor. That's true. However, there's a far deeper problem. And the problem is if you, to, to become a counselor, to become a therapist, you can't confer a degree upon yourself. You have to go to a degree conferring institution. Those institutions have been ideologically captured. So the main paradigm they're using now is gender affirming care. There's a, a university I won't name that happens to be in Portland, Oregon, in which the people going through their therapy program when they're dealing with homeless people, the first unit of education, I've seen this with my own eyes and spoken to some of these graduates, is not how do you get off drugs or you know how to use a condom or where do you find health services? No, it's pronouns. They teach homeless people the first lesson is pronouns. So we, we've geared our institutions to teach people who graduate with therapy degrees counseling degrees psycho psycho in psychology to affirm someone's care not to ask questions and the tavistock clinic again in london there's a great book i just started reading it um there's a great book about tavistock and the intent you ask the data they intentionally don't save the data nobody saves mm -hmm. the data and they don't the, the question is well why don't they save the data they save the data for cancer treatments they say save the data you name it they'll save the data uh, but but anyway, it, it, you're talking about a problem that is not remediated by someone saying go to counseling, because counseling is part of the problem. The whole mm. the whole edifice 
the whole apparatus of the of what we should trust has become corrupted. All of it. It's all corrupt. All of it. So you only have two. You only have two options. Then, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Two options. Please well, there are only two. There are only two things you can do about it. You can either burn the whole thing down, mm-hmm. which I'm personally a fan of. Um, but it, you you can't have a society in which you have no institutions. That's completely insane. Like you know, you know, my friend Eric Weinstein just said on Chris Williams' podcast, like nobody is gonna you know, make, try to get, make their own electricity or grow their own cows or something. It's just, it's just not, it's not feasible in the modern world. I'm a, a big believer of y- you have to build new things. Okay. So you can burn the institutions down, but if you do that, you have to build new things or you can try to change and reform the institutions like what Chris, Chris Rufo was doing at new college. And I'm telling you from behind the scenes, I can't reveal any confidences. Uh, I can't break any trust, but he is doing some, unbelievable things if he is successful in this wow that then, then i will say that i have been wrong and maybe it's possible that the institutions can be salvaged i personally don't think they can be salvaged because even the missions of the institutions while they're the same like planned parenthood the people who are aclu splc i mean there's the list is endless right the the missions are the same in print but the people who discharge those missions are discharging a different mission like you can think about it as the american nazi party marching in Skokie, Illinois. That would never happen under the ACLU today because free speech is considered to be uh, a dog whistle or, or, or some way to, um, so, so quote unquote, people can say the N word. It's inherently tied up with racism. So anyway, those are the only choices you have. You either build new institutions or you try to reform the institutions. Many people who want to build new institutions uh, also want to tear down the existing academic, in particular, architecture, because there are entire wings of university architecture that are predicated upon discharging, you know, getting out the ideology and making it an idea mill where people just, they indoctrinate people into the ideology. Now, is it essential to be indoctrinated into that ideology in order to fit into the modern world vis-a-vis, you know, how corporations, you know, they have the DIE, diversity, inclusion, equity stuff. Uh, let me ask it a different way. Would you spend 70 grand a year to send your child to one of these places? Absolutely not. In fact, I told my daughter repeatedly to be an electrician. Don't go to college. I'll pay for any electrical school that you want to attend. I just say that because she's, she's, uh, she, she happens to have a facility with that. No, I, and if you look at college enrollment rates are plummeting. They're even a little lower, slightly lower at the big schools because people have people don't trust those institutions and those degree conferring institutions don't do what they claim they can do. By the way, I think I mentioned to you right before the show, it's probably a appropriate time to pull up some statistics on mm-hmm. what's happening in college and universities rather than two guys just BSing. Let's actually look at some data. I love data. I love data. So I'm going to pull up this screen now. We'll take a look at this. Let me know if you can see that. Okay, so this is really... Interesting. This is a tweet I, I put out. This is how acceptable is it to shout down a speaker to prevent them from speaking on college campuses? Mm. That's, that's really rather remarkable. Um, if you look at the Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Christian, 25, 25, 27, 27. But when you go all the way down to the bottom of atheists, look how many atheists think it's acceptable mm. and think it's never acceptable. Yep. This is a kind of, this is again, the thing I wrote about my first book, Gad Sad has written about this 
uh, when he talks about idea pathogens. This yeah. is an idea that has parasitized largely secular people within a new, with a new religion. It is a parasitization yeah. on the cognitions of people. So, and if you pull up the other, we have one more uh, uh, little thing I sent you. If we pull up that. Yeah, this one. This is just utterly mind-blowing. In Harvard admissions, highest performing groups get a 50% racial penalty and the lowest performing group get a 1,600% racial preference. That's an odd way to run an institution that's supposed to have something to do with valuing intellectual ability and academic potential. Okay, so let's take a look at this. If Harvard admitted students only from the top 10% of its applicants, the Asian share would rise from 24.9% to 51.7%. So you would have half of the students, slightly over half of the students being Asian. Of course, my quote tweet for that was, I don't see the problem with that. If you really want to Mm -hmm. have a meritocracy and you want to have people trust the institutions, what difference does it make what race they are in the institutions? It's the people who are the smartest, who work the hardest, who have the best, whatever, by whatever metrics, whatever test scores you want to apply, grades, whatever it is. But they give Asians, there was systemic racism against Asians. They give them low quote unquote personality scores as if they all fall into Mm -hmm. the same path. I mean, these people are yep. truly, truly dastardly. They're just sinister racists. They're actual racists, Chris, is what it is. Now look at this. It's true. Um, the white share would drop from 37.6% to 35%. Okay, well, that's a terrible way for the same people running around claiming that there's white supremacy everywhere. This is a terrible position. I mean, th- these are the worst <laughs> These are the worst white supremacists ever <laughs> if uh-huh. they decrease <laughs> their admission to the top school. Um, then the Hispanic share would plummet. So there are 14.9% of the students are Hispanic to 2.7%. Uh, and then the, the black share would vanish from 158 So 15.8% of the incoming class at Harvard is African-American to 0.9%. Mm. I mean, you really, like, really, really think about that. So that means at our elite institutions, we are taking in people who are not the best qualified candidates. We, mm-hmm. we are taking people into position. That is a recipe for a bunch of things. One, it's a recipe for people to not trust the institutions. And what happens if these people get out? You know, I think it was American Airlines who wanted to increase their diversity hiring by 50%. So that means you're not having the best people fly the planes. I mean, that's completely insane. I mean, when it goes into medicine, when it goes into the military, when it goes into aviation, so that you're hiring someone on the basis of an exogenous characteristic because of an ideology, which means you can't discharge your primary mission, which is to land the plane safely. Of course, it's to make money as well, which which will also be affected. So you well, have a... Go ahead. P- Peter, they clearly are doing this because they believe that they're doing a, a greater good or there's there's good. Like they do this because they think they're good people. They go home, they sleep at night, right. they pull the covers up, their eyes close, they fall asleep. What steel man it? What what's their what's the argument? So uh, one nuance. Yes, you're correct. They do that because they think they're good people and they do that for moral reasons. They're not doing that for any other reasons. It's a moral. It's a, this is moral. Okay, let me steel man it. So first steel man, what would the effect of having 80, uh, having f- over 50%, I think it's 51 point something percent of Asians at elite universities be? The effect would be that you'd basically have a ruling class that's of a certain race. 
and uh, with the in terms of African Americans, you'd have a permanent underclass. And so that's also why this is the steel man. That's also why you need adequate representation of African Americans, for example, as doctors in movies and TV shows, even though those percentages are very small. That's the first steel man. The second steel man is, and I had a conversation with Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute about this. So I'm going to give you a piece of data that you need to understand this in Heather's most recent book, and then I'm going to give you the steel man. People do not understand the degree of the disparity. This is what it comes down to. I asked Heather, why are people so willing to throw away the meritocracy? Like, I don't understand it. Like, I could understand why they're willing to throw away some other things. But why them? I mean, the meritocracy got us where we are. It's inherently fair. It, it's a principled stance. It's rationally derivable. She told me it's because people don't understand the degree of the disparity. They think, for example, in black and Asian test scores, there's a very small disparity. Or even in Ashkenazi Jews, which nobody wants to talk about uh, test scores, there's a very small disparity. It's not true. There's a massive disparity. People don't understand how great those differences are. So they don't think it really makes any difference in outcome because they don't understand. It is such a gulf, a gulf that people don't realize that individuals will be put in positions of authority or put in positions in which technical expertise is required that they will not be capable of fulfilling the responsibilities of the job because they don't have because there are qualifications and metrics that are set up okay with that said so here's the here's the second steel man so that's just the that's just the fact and you can look at her recent book for that uh, the, the the degree of disparity is extremely small the, 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 there's no real difference and the sat even if you were to go by sat it doesn't measure anything and the whole concept of g which psychologists call general intelligence that's fallacious it doesn't test for certain things so that's 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 the other the degree of track the third steel man is that the only way to overcome the legacy of this is ibram x Kendi's point the uber best-selling author and endowed chair the only way to kind of get over or the only way to address past discrimination is with present discrimination the only way to address present discrimination or overcome that is with future discrimination so it's necessary in the short term that we discriminate against certain people uh, because of the legacy of, of historical oppression. There's no other way because the people, the, the dispar every disparity in outcome exists because of some systemic force. That's critical race theory in a nutshell. That's kind of wokeism in a nutshell. It's not culture. It's not genetics. It's not anything. It's, it's the system. The system is inherently geared and designed to oppress and keep people down. And you can fix that difference by changing the system to jerry-rig the outcomes among certain individuals, certain races. So that would be now the this, other, those are the steel mans. Well, thank you for taking me through that and taking all of us through that because um, so so in something else you said earlier, they they're they're not collecting the data on right. on the transgender outcomes. And so this is a this is a thing that's been a mystery to me. So I, I watched this beautiful New York Times of all people produce this thing. Um, Benjamin Applebaum's on there providing the, the color commentary and, and they taught they answered the question like why are our democratic states so hypocritical because they say they want things like equity and they want fairness and and they want to solve homelessness and they want a, a greener environment and but when you look at their the outcome of their policies like California they've been able to ride roughshod for for decades 
what do we have? That's where most of the homelessness is. This is where most of the disparities. It's just rank. What's that? You're going to love this answer. (laughs) Okay. So what's the disconnect? (laughs) You, you made a massive uh, mistake in that. Who, Who told you that, by the way? Who said that to you? That was the New York Times. Okay. So this is how the ideology promulgates. I wish I wish I could rewind what you just said and take it verbatim, but you said that they want to. Um, I'm I'm going to bracket the democratic part of it for a moment because I I try not to make things political even though I understand it's political, but I just want to want to look at it independent sure. of a party affiliation because if someone listens to this and they're a Democrat, they'll just tune out. So let, let's see if we can extract that. Um, okay. So if you look at the words that you just said in that sentence, they, a certain group of individuals, they want equity was the first thing you said. They want Mm -hmm. fairness. Equity and fairness are not the same thing. Equity is not equality. This is the biggest mistake that people make. So I'm going to argue to you that they've gotten exactly what they told you they were going to get. Now you might think that's insane, but they're not lying to you. They've, in fact, they've screamed from the rooftops and people have continued like the New York Times, which is a vehicle to push the ideology, to forward the ideology. NPR, by the way, is the worst. If, you, if you're looking at a hierarchy of deranged, uh, it would be mm-hmm. NPR. Good. I like them laddered out. That's good to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did a whole sequence from my YouTube channel on uh, taking the time to go through episode by episode of NPR and show what the problem is. So they smuggle in policy positions by changing the meanings of everyday words. What do you think equity means? Well, uh, taking it from a social standpoint, it means that um, you have a, a fair and level playing field. Ah, okay. Um, How do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, equal application of, of the agreed upon things that we have. We call them laws. No, that's equality. That's equality. Equity is something very different. Again, to bring up Kendi again, equity is the idea. It's a redistri- It's in a one word summary. It's redistribution. I did a thing on my YouTube channel where I explain, I translate wokish into English in 60 seconds, each word. Oh, um, good. I'll be yeah. sure to watch that. Yeah, so equity, equity is not, you know, like I'm in a house now, let's say the house costs 50,000, and I have, you know, put 10,000 in, I have, you know, 10,000 equity. That's how it used to be used up until maybe 2013, 2014. And now there's the intentional conflation of equity and equality. So equity is the idea that you want to redistribute shares. Equity is the idea that what I said before you address past discrimination by present discrimination, it, particularly in a racial or gender kind of a way. So if we don't have enough, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor had a famous clip about the Supreme Court, how many female justices should we have? Well, if it, if it were, she said nine, nine is equity, four and five is equality. In other words, you make up for the fact that there were fewer Supreme Court discrimina- uh, uh, Supreme Court ju- judges and systemic discrimination by making every, every future Supreme Court. That's what Biden did with 
the uh, uh, explicit election when he said, I'm going to put a black female when only 2% of black females graduate from, from law schools. So th that they're giving you exactly what they tell you they're going to give you. They're not hiding it. In fact, they're shouting it from the rooftops. It's just that they've hoodwinked people. They've bamboozled people because they're trafficking in common meanings of words. But the, Peter, there is no greater disequity than, than exists in California, which I believe has the highest gap between the rich and the poor. Um, okay, so they so say we, they want it, but I'm just talking about like like the like like what has gone wrong where they say they want this, but then when you actually try and measure the outcomes, they get that right. You they're know, giving they, you exactly what they're telling you they're going to give you. They're giving you equity. So so for example, why why is the talent why are talented and gifted programs being canceled at at and, and grade school, middle schools, and high schools across the country? Well, for a few reasons. One, they're considered to be racist because people from certain race racial groups outperform other groups. But the other reason is because it's a form of equity. So equity is like, so, so this, it's hard, it's hard for sane people to wrap their head around this because it's so crazy. It's just, it really takes, you just have to let this idea percolate for a second. An equitable system. So an equal system is when, for example, if people want to compete for public office, uh, an equal system is if you have a, if you have a um, if if you have a, a when I was in the fifth grade my teacher Mr Fitzpatrick used to have this uh, uh, fish bowl that he used to put on his desk and we used to all write our names and when he wanted to uh, p uh, call on someone rather than having someone raise he just reach into the fish bowl and that that's that is an equal system and by the way that works unbelievably well I don't know if it worked today pedagogically because because everybody would claim something bizarre, but that worked unbelievably well because everybody always had, I always had to, and I know other people felt the same way. They had to pay attention because they didn't know if their name was going to come out of the fishbowl. And he would take your name, by the way, and parenthetically, and he'd stick it back in the fishbowl so you couldn't kind of zone out after that. But um, <laughs> that, that's an equal system. An equitable system, for example, we, we published a fake paper about this. There's something called the progressive stack. The progressive stack first came about in Occupy Wall Street, and it was that it forwarded the question of people who had uh, some oppression variables. You think about it like this, like if you're at a concert, if you're at a concert and they have a progressive stack and that you can Google this or you can whatever search engine you use, people have done this at concerts. If you're a black crippled or let's say if you're a black lesbian and I say female, although I shouldn't have to put the word female in there, you get to go to the front. If you're a white, quote unquote, cis, hetero male, you get to go into the back. So we structure the system, we built in the system, things that take into account uh, historical oppression markers. And that's an equitable system. That's not an equal system. So in one of our papers to, to, that we, we um, submitted to the leading journal, Hypatia, we argued for a progressive stack in education so that we argued that white cis heterosexual men should be you know, denied chairs and sat on the floor with chains around their neck as a form of experiential reparations. That's equity. That's You're equity. right. I'm having, a, I'm having a hard time understanding this because um, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to me, right? It, it, this is complete nonsense. So, so what you're saying, if I'm going to paraphrase this, we address racism by being racist and identifying people by their characteristics. We 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 affirm a gender by making somebody change it. We can't affirm it until it's been changed, really. 
or okay. something like that. We, it's here's the important thing to understand in this conversation. You can say that you dislike racism and you don't think Asians should be discriminated against because they're Asians and need higher scores to get into that. You're perfectly within your epistemological, moral, social, political rights to make that utterance. But you cannot criticize that on the basis that it's not equitable. That's that criticism rings hollow. It's completely equitable. The fact that you can inflate, I don't remember what the, the, the percentage of uh, African-American scores was at Harvard, but you, you, you can argue against that. You can say it's against the meritocracy. You can say it's un-American. You can say it's racist. You can say anything, and those things are all true. But you cannot say that's not equitable. That is the definition of equity. So any criticism that what these people are doing or what Ted Wheeler is doing here in Portland, uh, that, that this is um, not equitable, it's just, that's just not true. It's just not a fair criticism. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, what you're saying, it's just, it's, it's communist, right? It's, isn't this just straight up? Yeah, I mean, you could communist ideology, right? You can criticize it on the basis that it's communist, but you can't criticize it on the basis that it's not equitable. It's totally equitable. okay. So, all right. So, so what historical or other examples in the world do we have of societies where this approach of equity and being equitable has led to more prosperity, happiness, and, and a, 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 a better experience for people? Okay, so even that question, so you asked me about steel manning before. I'm trying to take the position of someone who believes this stuff. The, I'm, the I'm, thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is that someone who believes this stuff will never have a conversation with you because it's usually unraveled after a few, for, for a number of reasons, that. And they think that from the idea that I had said before, even have a conversation with you is polluting and it, they lose social capital. So... Um, so your, your question to me, let me see if I have your question right, is give me an example of another society that has instituted these you know, equ equitable norms, so shall we say, and that, that has led that society to flourish. Is that correct? That's correct. Good okay. reframing. Yeah. Here is the response to that. I don't accept the question. I don't accept the question because that's the wrong way to look at the problem. The, Every time those societies have flourished, they've flourished on the backs of African-Americans and they've flourished on the backs of, of, of gay people. They've flourished on the backs of people who have had historical oppression markers. So we're not trying to create, we're not looking at those old systems because this hasn't been done before. We're trying to create a new system in which we elevate the voices of individuals. And I can give you examples of this if you want. Let me give you, let me give you a quick example of this. So mm -hmm. there's something called, I've been screaming about this for years. No one seems to care about it. Of course, I've been screaming about all this stuff. I was like a Nostradamus of this stuff for years. No one listens. And here we are in this freaking mess. Um, just literally the whole society is just like becoming an open sewer. So mm -hmm. it's, think about it in terms of citation justice. So citation justice is you, in, in, a, in a peer review paper, you forward the citations of people whose ancestors have been historically oppressed. For example, African-Americans, gay people, et cetera. Okay, that is so insane. So we know that if you look at the data, I mean, this is so, like, that is just so, like, what are you going to do? Entire roads of inquiry would be cut off because there's been no black scholars studying it. I mean, you, you could, what do you want to do like in all the semiconductor work? I just, I have no idea who's publishing in semiconductors. I just made that up, but I'm assuming that they're Russians, Jews. 
I, I don't, I don't know Asians, maybe Chinese. I don't really know what the data is for that, but would that mean that because certain racial groups weren't represented that you don't pursue lines of inquiry? So to get back to your question then, the idea is not that we're gonna look at this historically and find societies who have adopted these processes to lead to their flourishing. We're gonna build new societies that are not within the master's tools cannot disable the master's house. That's Aubrey Lord, the black lesbian feminist. We're gonna build a new house, but we're not gonna free of racism, patriarchy, systemic discrimination, et cetera, but we're not gonna use the old tools to get there. For example, we're gonna use citation justice. We're not gonna use you know, uh, uh, voting to get there. We're not gonna use, use liberalism. We're not gonna use free speech. We're not gonna use epistemic adequacy. We're not gonna use the tools of science and reason, which are themselves patriarchal and white supremacist. We're not gonna use mathematics. We're not gonna be on time for meetings. We're not gonna, we're creating a new society. We're not gonna do schedules. Yeah, so don't don't say that it's not equitable. It's definitely equitable. So, the, the so I'm I'm a I really should have been born in Missouri because I'm a show me guy. So show me where this is working and bringing greater flourishing. It must have a microcosm somewhere. Maybe okay, at your old institution, people must be just absolutely ecstatically leaving lives of meaning and purpose at this point. Okay. Okay, so let's let's talk about this. Um, and again, I'm going to steal manners. Okay, please do. Okay, and so before I didn't mean to be condescending to you, uh, but I'm trying to adopt the stance of somebody who's in that mindset. That's why I'm saying this stuff to you. you no, know, it's really important because I'm, I I always try and find the other side. I just haven't been found have, haven't been able to find somebody who can do this. Yeah, because they won't. Because they won't. And so that's a whole conversation that we can have. But I because that's really important that your listeners understand that. So make sure we don't forget that. Okay, so let's go back to this. So you, you said, I want to make sure I understand what you said. That's actually Rappaport's first rule. Repeat something back to someone to make sure that uh, you understood it and they you could do so in a way that's better than they could. I'm not saying I can. I'm just saying that's, that's a way when you're in a conversation across a divide, like and I'm playing someone across a gulf from you, you always want to repeat to make sure that you got the question right. So... Mm -hmm. um, so give me an example of forget a country of an institution in which they've adopted this these um, uh, policy proposals and policy prescriptions and the institution is better off right and the people in it the individuals uh, yeah okay um harvard we know from the data that we now have 15 percent of applicants who are african-americans but if we went by test scores we'd have like what is it 0.9 or something less than one percent i can't remember whatever the data was well, it's already with point there. Yeah, we, that we've already ach achieving equity. I mean, we have a lot of work to do to overcome systemic racism. That number should be the number of people. This is the other thing about equity. The number of African-Americans at Harvard has to exceed the number of the, the percentage of African-Americans in the society to, ha to have true equity. It's not equity is not proportional representation. Equity is going beyond proportional representation. So we, you ask where it's been achieved? It's been achieved at, at Harvard. And you would and, say that, that the people at Harvard are, are happier and more fulfilled because of this? That's, that's the wrong metric to use. You ask where it's been achieved, mm. it's been achieved at, at Portland State University. I think it has, a, I think it has like a 98% acceptance rate. Um, I mean, there, there are, um, you know, uh, colleges of 
anything with the word studies in it seems to be to be flourishing. Whether they're happy or prosperous is the wrong metric to look at it. You need to look at it strictly in the sense of equity. We now have access, African Americans, for example, have access to more educational opportunities now and the degree to which they can succeed monetarily and successfully because of a Harvard degree is very, very high. Also, the FIRE, Greg Lukianoffs, and you can, you can, I encourage everybody, please don't believe anything I say, please go, go whatever search engine, whatever browser, whatever, fit, any way that you want to get the data, please do not listen to me. Uh, Greg mm -hmm. Lukianoffs uh, organization, he was the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. He has a new book out, The Canceling of the American Mind. He's become a friend of mine, just talking to him the other day. Um, he released data, the number one worst school for freedom of speech is Harvard University. So Chris, you want to know where it succeeded? Where it's equity is succeeding right there. All when right, I, so when I, just one more thing, when I went to an administrator at my university, I asked the president of Portland State to talk to me for five minutes, to have a five minute conversation with me. Repeat, he would not do it. He would, he's too busy, he's too busy. Really, too busy, five minutes. I got to a dean, I told the dean, I'm deeply worried that the same organization, FIRE, put Portland State University on the list of one of the, I think it was the top 10, I think, worst schools for freedom of speech. The dean said, it's a good thing to be on those lists. So you're coming at this with a frame of mind. Where is this work? Where is it? You know, are they happier? Those are not the right questions to ask. I've given you an example. It's Harvard University. Um, and we also made the number, we're the number one worst college in, in the United States for free speech. So there you go. In other words, we're the number one anti-racist university. So I've just answered your question. So with Harvard, I, I beat on them um, extensively for their moral failings because they were one of the last holdouts. Uh, and I'm not sure about their policy today because I haven't looked as of today, but it, this was true recently where they still had a vaccination policy that all students had to be vaccinated and boosted. Right. It was suggested for faculty and staff. And so when you just run that through the intellectual process where we know that people of that age are the least susceptible. They have almost no benefit from this, but they take a lot of risk because myocarditis is kind of a you know big deal. Um, so they take, so Harvard was saying, hey kids, you're the future of the country. We need you to do this completely insane thing, which has no benefit to you so that the staff feels a little safer in your presence. Although it's up to them how they want to conduct their lives because they're adults. And so this is a complete perversion of what our social norms used to be, which is that the older generation would literally sacrifice itself for its children. And we flip that. Sorry but how about, about I mean, so so isn't that a measure of a society like like them? I, I, if I'm an incoming or if I'm just anybody who's, who's who's of a young age, that deal, the breaking of that deal. OK, is, let's is, get OK, hold, hold on a second. So let's keep the conversation to equity for a moment because we mm -hmm. we have a lot of work to do here. That, that is not equitable. Like that's not they can yes it's contradictory but it's not a problem of equity yes you can look at the data and parse the data out and get the more granular you'd get on the data in terms of age and and consequences but it's not it's not equity i if, if i may chris i'd like to stick with with harvard for a second because i don't mm -hmm. think people understand the degree of the problem so i wrote the forward to a book snakes in the ganga by an indian public intellectual rajiv maholtra and Rajiv Moholtra is a fascinating, he's one of India's leading public intellectuals. And in this, I don't think I have a copy here. Um, in this massive tome, it's just, it's huge, it took me forever to read. 
Um, he details Harvard University taking these concepts of equity, taking these ideas that basically woke people have and exporting them around the world in general and to India in particular as a neo-colonial export. And they're basically colonizing Indian intellectuals, Indian intellectual institutions and Indian academies. So all around the world, the United States is spreading this divisive, dangerous, poisonous, critical social justice insanity. And that's a, a key piece of the component is that we're not just slowly killing ourselves, throw, slowly throwing away our meritocracy. We're doing this to the rest of the world as an American cultural export. And I go around the world for my YouTube channel and we, we, talk to, we talk to people and we see this constantly over and over, these woke reasons, critical social justice reasons being given for policy positions. And many of the ways that this gets in is through language like equity. And can I just say one more thing? Please. This is so important for people to understand if you look at the, if you're interested in, in, in the international arena, the way that these, that this ideology gets in and weaves its way into institutions and embeds its, in, its way into the institutions in outside of the Anglosphere, like not in English speaking countries, not in Australia, not in London, which we, we, we were, and we could speak to that is that equity, people like you, sane people, educated people will have, will traffic in the ordinary meanings of terms. And in foreign languages, like we did this in Hungary, or we did this in Romania, we've done this in, in Austria. Um, the word equity, only the primary meaning of the word equity will translate. The secondary meaning of the word won't translate. So, and I published a piece about this, I think it's in Spiked Magazine. Um, it's, it's, it's just like two pages, so you can read about it in more detail. So when the primary meaning of a word translates, in order for wokeness to get into a system, they have to use the English words. So Rajiv Maholtra sent me like, you know, videos of Indian Supreme Court justices. I, it's in Hindi, I guess. I don't, I don't speak any Indian language. I have no clue what language is. Punjab, I don't know what it is, but it's like, and I don't say this to be disrespectful, like, you know, blah, 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 equity. Blah, 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 inclusion. Because only the primary meanings of the words translate. But that's not how wokeism infects a system. Wokeism infects a system like exactly what you just said before in your line about equity, fairness in the New York Times. That's how, how, how wokeness gets in. So I don't know the solution to keeping, I mean, you can't be a hegemon and tell people what words they can't use in their, in their native language. But that, that's, if you're listening to this and English isn't your first language, that should be an instant red flag if you're having a conversation with someone and that comes up. They use an English word. So, I mean, I'm thinking now of what um, Gad said, wrote about in the mind virus, but I'm also thinking about maybe just the movie V for Vendetta, that there are ideas. I, I traffic in ideas. That's what I do. Right. And I really believe that if we have the right ideas in place, humans can do amazing things. And if we have the wrong ideas in place, we can do some really awful things. This is a critical moment in history. Where it feels to me like somebody is pushing hard to get this mind virus out and installed. And I look at it from every angle, Peter, and I can't find its benefit. Not to us as a culture, not as a species, not to individuals. I really, they're all abstract. I can't find any concrete benefits that I can really point to. What, again, help me understand, help all of us understand what, what are the benefits here that, that are perceived by 
the people I'm trying to reach. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to steel man this. So, so the, the real answer to your question before I steel man it is not only are there no benefits, it is divisive, hurtful, dangerous. It like I talked about at the beginning of the hour, it's painful to me personally. And you, we've lost friends over this. We've lost, just think about looking at people in terms of race instead of character, being told that to be colorblind is a microaggression or to be told that quote unquote, we're all Americans is a microaggression or it's dangerous. It's divisive. It's hurtful. It's destroying the meritocracy. It's destroying our institutions. It's dimming the shining city, the lights of the shining city upon a hill. It's an unmitigated, unprecedented catastrophe. And we also know my, my very dear friend, Faisal Amutar from Ideas Beyond Borders, he has told me, and I'm not revealing any confidence when I tell you this at all, that uh, China and Russia are behind BLM propaganda. They go through the Middle East and they pump it out. We know that the Confucius Institute, which is a very benign sounding name, you, you can look into the Confucius Institute if you haven't, they're on campuses and what they do, their efforts to promote propaganda, um, but specifically one type of propaganda to, to win by dividing. It's, Sun Tzu, Lao Tzu. Um, now I'm going to try to steel man that. Two things, Chris. First of all, you, I don't know your sexuality. I think you're, you're I met your fiance a long time ago, but you're cis white hetero male, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there you go. That's part of the problem. So you're operating from a reality lens in which you, in the literature, it's called privilege preserving epistemic pushback. You want to preserve your privilege at all cost, and you want to create mental models and structures to prevent the liberation of other people from exercising their liberties and uh, not, no, not their liberties to prevent people um, uh, to keep people down. You want to keep people down because of who you are. That's the other thing. It's the problem of whiteness in which you participate. And you also have guys like Bogosian on and you have other, other people in the space, and these people are clearly morally tainted. So you're morally tainted by proxy, in addition to your immutable characteristics preventing you from seeing the truth. So that's one thing. The second thing is the lens of analysis by which you used, like when you asked me about the success of various universities or countries or where this has worked, the lens of analysis is not correct. Again, this is the, the steel manning position. The lens of analysis is your lens of analysis is to historical oppression, bigotry, racism, discrimination, etc. And it may not be possible for you to understand that because you're epistemically limited because you've just grown up with privilege your whole life and all you want to do is preserve that privilege. I don't know your financial status, but if you're wealthy, uh, that's a mark against you. You're clearly educated. That's another mark against you. So you just reek of privilege. And you won't want to give your privilege up. Uh, so, so any, you trying to figure out what, what the benefit of the ideology is, it, it would be like, I was going to say, you know, this, people say the singularity is like an earthworm trying to understand the, the uh, symphony, but it's even worse than that. You just do not have the epistemic capacity to understand. So you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you had your age before, and now it's time to let people with other variables t take over the society. It's time for you mm. to die, basically. It's time for you to live in 
be immiserated in poverty, disease, and despair. Because that'll I mean, balance I, this all out. <laughs> well, that's right? equity, right? That's equity because that is equity actually. Because previously, white cis hetero, edu well educated men had privilege in society, um, and now that's not the case. By the way, why why is it that uh, if there's systemic disgrace racism in the society and it's ubiquitous why is it not in sports why is it not in basketball why is it not in the music industry why is it and, and why do we see things like that um again the the problem inherent in that question is that is everybody goes into a discourse with a certain set of assumptions their claim is that you are limited to understanding the truth based upon who you are, based upon some exogenous characteristic like your whiteness, and then you have to quote unquote participate in whiteness. Does that answer? I have your a more. Yeah, it does. That was brilliant, and I, I really appreciate that because it gives me something to sort of frame against. Um, I have a very profound problem in my okay. in my understanding of all this, and it, it's pretty core. And that is that I'm old enough and I've also been brave enough to have done a lot of self-introspection and inner work and understand where my edges are. And Peter, every single moment of growth I've had has come because I experienced some sort of painful adventure or misadventure, okay? So I equate personal development with coming up against hard, hard times. And what you're telling me is that people want to manufacture hard times for me, but it has nothing to do with whether I've screwed up or not. I'm just going to experience hardness. So hardness all on its own without a lesson involved. Well, that's just stupid. But this, but I really ran up against this when I had, um, and I almost accidentally hired somebody where, where it came in, where they were really serious about this. They really believed in nonviolent communication. And on the surface of it, I sort of get it, but at core, it's basically saying I have to assume responsibility for structuring my words and sentences in such a way that you don't get triggered. I don't know what your triggers are. I don't know what your childhood was like. I don't know which sound, sense, colors, ideas trigger you, but I then assume responsibility for something I fundamentally can't know. And on the basis of that, I'm going to make sure that you, if I do it well, you will never experience a moment of discomfort in my presence, which means I've signed up to something which says, hey, Peter, our deal, we're never going to grow. You're, you will never have a chance to grow in, I demand the same in return. We're just going to like be frozen in psychological lucite for the rest of time. And this is the way we go forward. And everything in my life militates against that. All my experiences say, that's not how this works. Okay. <clears throat> okay. I find myself folding my arms constantly now because I have to think through a way to be as charitable to a position that I find odious, as charitable as possible to that position. So certain individuals in society have suffered under the yoke of such horrific discrimination that their whole lives are suffering. Any conception of suffering that you have as a white, and it's even worse because you're middle-aged, I'm middle-aged, so I can tell you, say that you're middle-aged. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's even worse for you because you, any perception of suffering literally does nothing. It's just, it's nothing to understand the hardships that, for example, African-Americans have grown up with. Nothing. So 
the the lens that you're looking through the problem it's you know it's like the world's small, smallest violin oh woe is me i want to grow as a person meanwhile there are other people getting called the n-word being spit on being systemically discriminated against from getting into um um colleges uh you know they face racist tests with the sats um you know just this 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 litany of horrors that people have been subjected to for arbitrary reasons and so any claim that you have of wanting to grow just falls short it's just no no nobody should listen to that the reminds me sort of the rwandan you know truth and reconciliation commission right you can't have reconciliation without the truth so so what we're trying to get to so maybe the the venn diagram overlap such as it is might be that that we're both saying we're trying to get to truth here because I'm taking you as the steel man position, right? So if we're trying to find truth here, my truth is that um, all development and growth comes because we fail at things, right? As an entrepreneur, my failures were more important than my successes in so many ways. And so what you're saying, though, is there is a structural systemic system out there that we have to just sort of re... But, but we're not going to go through the truth and reconciliation component of this. We're just going to have one 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 side of that. We'll we'll do the reconciliation... Not even reconciliation, because you have to fess up to something. We're going to do the reparation side of that, or whatever that story is. We're just going to make it right by rebalancing the scales by... Well, it's really two wrongs make a right, you know? So, so here we go. So we're going to balance this by doing the same thing over here in equal measure until these things in our... In our well, I don't know who the arbiter is until these balance in some way. Okay. And then this is how we, we come up with a better system. Okay. So again, I'm steel man. I don't believe this. Uh, so this is, this is very, very important. So, okay. So before I steal man, let me just give some background, some theoretical background so that people can understand this stuff. And th there's a great book. There are a bunch of great books. Uh, Helen Pluckrose is, very operative in this space. She wrote a, an article, I think 2017 or so, how French intellectuals rule in the West. So if any of your guests and your viewers want to like learn more, she also wrote Cynical Theories with James Lindsay, which explains this. And there have been many, many uh, subsequent uh, books that have done a fantastic job on this. I mentioned Andrew Doyle's The New Puritans, which is just extraordinary. It's like a looking at looking at this from the future and seeing what the problems were as they manifest themselves. Okay, so here's part of the problem. So it's not that, you, so you're, you, you have, at one point you switched in that explanation to say my truth. So you're dealing with a few things. You're dealing with a subjectivity. My truth, your truth, it's called standpoint epistemology. You, you, you have your truth, I have my truth. But the other problem is that these people, the people who participate in the ideology are making very specific claims about reality. And those are objective claims and they're measurable and demonstrable. So for example, one of the claims is that every disparity in outcomes is due to systems. I mentioned that before, but it's a key claim because I'm going to go back to that because it's an objective claim. It's a, it's a, it's a claim about reality. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't fare very well when it comes, and there was just a, 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 somebody who falsified a lot of data about uh, systemic violence in, in the police. And if you want to um, uh, learn more about that, Matt Thornton has a great book that I wrote the uh, forward for, or the afterward called The Gift of Violence. Okay. This isn't, you're not talking about Eric Stewart, Stewart right now, right? I just pulled this up too, this uh, New York yes, uh, post article. 
The That's professor fired for faking systemic racism, Dady. Six studies retracted. It, it, it's bad. We could go through it, but is that who you're talking about? Well, that's, that's, that's very important because cities burn because of his falsified data. And I was been warning people how easy it is to get fake data in and why journals publish morally fashionable things. And I wrote, the, James Lindsay and I wrote The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct in 2017. And so now pe people look at that. That's why we need, that's why that's the legitimacy crisis. This conversation is full circle. That's why we need not only institutions we can trust, but bodies of knowledge and scholarship and literature that we know have been vetted, that we know that the, the best people have tried to falsify this data that that is not morally fashionable. And when people p pointed that out, they were excoriated. You're a racist, you're a Nazi, you're a homophobe, you know, the usual, the usual suspects. Keep in mind, this is a very small percentage of the people, uh, percentage of the population, many of whom are found in academia. But let, let, so you, let's go back to the other thing. We have a bunch of, uh, of separate problems. One of the problems is that you're making a claim if I make a claim that everybody's lived experience, particularly those with moral oppression markers should be listened to. And so, so as an example, like if we want to figure out are African Americans pulled over by the police more than other people, what's the best way to do that? Is the best way to do that to, to listen to the experiences of African Americans, which could be certainly considered to be at one data point, or is it, like to to look at body cams look at like how do we figure out what the best way to look at that data is and what role should lived experience be should the lived experience of of african americans who tell us that they're pulled over by the police more should that cause us to do a more rigorous data analysis and look at the evidence and then make public policy prescriptions as a consequence of the results of that evidence the problem is that you're trafficking in two contradictory ideas at once, and I'll tell you how that's adjudicated. You're trafficking in the idea that everybody's personal feelings, it's called a subjective turn, a turn toward subjectivity and away from objectivity. Those should be given primacy in one's intellectual, social, and personal life, sexual life, every, every arena of one's life. Which is interesting, actually, when you get to uh, uh, um, dating trans men and being gay or being trans women. I mean, it's, it's, it leads to some fascinating things. But the other problem is that you're making objective claims about reality. For example, um, you know, s certain a certain percentage of um, of um, I'm trying to th use the same examples that I made before. Oh yeah, the, the systemic systemic racism. Uh, the only that's the only factor. And, you know, you're making claims about biology, you're making claims that men can be women, etc. So you're making claims that are objective, while at the same time denying and demeaning objectivity and objective, objective truth. The, the way that they get out of that is absolutely fascinating, is they don't subscribe to the law of non-contradiction. So it's not a problem if there's a contradiction in their thinking, whereas for you and me, we, we, we share we, we may disagree. I don't really know what your politics are, but I'm, I'm sure if we, we dug within a few minutes, we could find some substantive disagreements, but we would agree upon how to adjudicate and figure out what's true about that because we agree upon the basic framework of, well, you know, how do, how do you figure something out, right? 
COVID, myocarditis. I mean, we just look at the evidence, right? And then we can, you know, sane, rational people can disagree about the evidence, but sane, rational people cannot disagree that evidence has to play some role in somebody's belief formation and that those can't be entirely subjective because if they're entirely subjective, they can't be universalized. They can't, you can't, it, 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 it's crippling for a society that wants to function in any, in, to operate in terms of the public good. So that's the, the way to frame it in the way that, the, that you can look at truth. Um, you, you know, Foucault has one word for it, power, power knowledge. And he says that the way to look at these systems, the way to look at things is it's not necessarily in terms of truth, it's in terms of power. Who has the power? Who wants to keep the power? And all of the, like, you, it's just a heuristic. It's a way to view, it's the way that they view systems and and when you see what the prescriptions are for those systems, it's to um, maybe in some cases reverse, if you're talking about equity, those power dynamics. Did that make sense? So, it was a explanation. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, let, let me, let me turn this then to, to this idea then, um, because th this is, there's a number of things I care about a lot. Um, I've taken a lot of personal psychology tests to sort of like try to map union or Myers-Briggs, this, that's, Every single time, the quadrant I score, the 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 line item I score highest on is is free thinking. I I just really value free thinking, right? Like it's like, um, they they act. It's on one. It was called diversity of of opinion, but using diversity truly, like that's my highest. I love new ideas and and I change them all the time and I wrestle with them and I take both sides. So that that's my highest order. I'm offended by the fact that they're saying systemically there's something wrong with that and we have to have an orthodoxy of thought and it's about rigidity. So so to me the the most I don't do left right anymore. It's just it's a uniparty good. anyway. But good, what, good, my, good. What's what's my up down axis? At the top of this is integrity, and the best definition I have is you are in integrity with yourself when you stand ready to be reeducated about anything at any time. That means you have such a solid core that your identity isn't wrapped in the ideas you hold. You're ready to be reeducated about all of them. They can come, they can go. So that's 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 why you have that rigid integrity. The opposite of that is ideological rigidity. And I don't care what that is, right? Could be an ultra, you know, ultra conservative religious person of any sort of denomination. But but that's what I've seen we, in universities now. We have this rigid orthodoxy. We had this rigid orthodoxy show up in the CDC, in the FDA. It was like pharma maximalist. And they excluded all this other data, um, you know, because they had this rigid orthodoxy. I'm seeing that in our foreign policy. So so that's that's really the thing I'm fighting against here is is this pushing towards this rigid orthodoxy that it, that's and i think it's destroying well it's destroyed a lot of my faith in institutions i mean really badly it, let, let me make this personal unless yeah. i am arterially bleeding or i'm having a heart attack i am not going to the hospital i've lost my faith i watch them kill people and i can prove it i have anecdotes i have data i've talked to doctors i've seen it it's a thing it's a bad system it's it's That's profound. Yeah, it's 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 corrupted uh, on a number of levels. I I don't share that degree of suspicion at all. But, but I think I think a, a degree of suspicion is warranted due to the systemic. And in this case, it actually is systemic. The systemic corruption. So right before you talked about that, I I was go thinking about hospitals and and dentistry and um, trusting systems that 
credential dentist. But so right before you started talking about that, what did you say? You said something super interesting that was well, trying to doing not doing left right anymore, but having Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So yeah, I think that that's right. I think that that I have called that and I've turned that in my work repeatedly. Um, are you willing to change your mind? Under what conditions would you be willing to revise your beliefs, et cetera? The, the right left doesn't do it anymore. I couldn't possibly agree more. I think it's the line is authoritarian, not authoritarian as one access. And we have people who want to control what you think. They want to rob you of your cognitive liberty. And then you have people. So I'm not, I'm not a, a, a Christian. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a complete atheist. I don't think there's any metaphysical realm. I don't even think there's a supernatural realm. And yet I have very close friends of mine, like I was just talking to Rod Dreher, who wrote Live Not By Lie the other day. He's a like a, an actual, like he is all in. I mean, there's no, there's, he is not, I'm telling you, I know him very well. He is not pretending. I, I used to think that, that, that a lot of people who believe this stuff were just pretending, but I'm telling you that there are some people who are absolutely not pretending, like they are genuinely believe mm -hmm. he's one of those people. But um, I, I, uh, I've found getting back to the relationship thing that people who don't participate in this toxic ideology, it's so refreshing to talk to them and to kind of, you know, Rob and I have, uh, Rod and I have had some very spirited debates about this stuff. Other friends of mine who are Christians, a, a guy who's kind of a friend of mine who's a Muslim, have had some spirited debates. And then, um, but there's something in either the ideology or again, being viewed as conservative, there's really, it's so disturbing to me that idea of the demeaning of truth and the demeaning that I can access that because of my skin color. And the idea that even if they're white, they're somehow an ally. And when you're an ally, um, I mean, again, Chris, this is such, it, it is such a sinister view of the world and what it's doing to society is so corrosive and so divisive it really is a universal solvent critical social justice destroys everything it touches it destroys mission statements of organiz destroys organizations it destroys friendships it destroys it is the ultimate corrosive to society years ago years ago i think 2015 or so or 2014 after we published and jim jim and i well he's coming up a lot in this conversation we published an article um, privilege is the original sin. We had the idea to ship to enemies of the United States the critical social justice ideology to ferment and sow discord in their societies. So we would we would ship that to all of our and North Korea, et cetera. We'd ship it around the world. We didn't have a deployment mechanism, so we we abandoned that idea. Little did we know that the idea would just take off on its own without us needing to deploy it. It was just a matter of time, but. Um, it is such a corrosive and such a toxic and such a dangerous ideology that I think the problem at this point has been overdiagnosed. And I think we need to shift the conversation to what do we do about it? Well, this is such a, a topical question because, you know, I, I get asked this all the time, like, hey, I just lost a friend, a lover, a colleague, a friend, you know, dad, son, whatever. Um, people have lost people in this battle. Um, and, and it's across multiple dimensions. So, so without just characterizing it as sort of the gender wars, it's, it's that orthodoxy, that, that authoritarianism, right? And there are people who believe in the authoritarianism. They really believe in it. I mean, they really believe in it. Like, hey, the government is the right solution to all kinds of things. When my objective truth, <laughs> to call it objective, is no, it's not. It inarguably fails from over and over and over again, right? But, but so um, 
how do we go about so i'm i'm with you i'm kind of a burn it down person because i believe you know in my past experience from the corporate world there would i would watch these mergers happen and sometimes you would try and knit the two companies together but sometimes the cultures just weren't a match and you burned part of the culture they got fired right because you couldn't you there was no fixing some things right um it's just how it is sometimes so is there a way, I mean, in, in, yeah. so let's have this conversation at two levels. How do we have this conversation with people? Exactly, exactly. And then are the institutions fixable, reformable, repairable in some way? Precisely, yeah. And, and I think that if we only had the conversation at one level, we'd be doing a disservice. Most people look at the systems level and they don't look at the individual level, which I think is a terrible mistake because it's had consequences for you. It's had consequences for me. Brett Weinstein is a, is a buddy of mine t told me last time I saw him, he said that he's lost so many friendships over this and so many friends. But one thing that he's noticed is that the quality of his interactions among his friends has, has risen dramatically. And mm -hmm. I've also found the same thing. You know, I don't want to hang out with someone just because they have my own beliefs that I happen to have that we share beliefs. In fact, it's far more interesting for the conversation if they don't, if it's not a, an a, a approbation session or an affirmation session, et, et cetera. So what do we do on a personal level? Well, there's only so much you can do. One of the things you can do is you, you can ask people to talk to you privately. You cannot snipe at someone on social media who, who, especially if you know them in real life, not, you know, this random person without who, who's, a, excuse me, who's anonymous. You cannot snipe someone on social media. If you have a disagreement or a difference of opinion about so, something, you can attempt to figure out what the disagreement is. I, I found, so Michael Schellenberger and I, I have a new collaborative project that's going to come out pretty soon, probably a couple of weeks. And it, it's mapping psychological conditions of people who participate or in the orbit of the ideology onto pathological conditions in the DSM. And every time we've done something like this, we've done another, uh, uh, we did a woke taxonomy. The trans stuff is like extra crazy. So there's like crazy and then there's extra crazy. And so any conversation that you have with an individual, once you start talking about trans, the conversation is instantly in hard mode. It's just instantly difficult. And my own, one of my speculations is that because we've extended the umbrella of rights to historically marginalized people, you know, animals, et cetera, that they think that the next kind of, the next move, the, the, the moral arc is bending toward justice as we move forward by extending this to trans people. And among those conversations, the most difficult conversations are, what do we do about people who suffer from gender dysphoria, who are under the age of 18. So that's another conversation that, that we, can, we can have. But <clears throat> the key in all of those conversations is to realize that they won't be easy, that you need to start from a posture of listening, that if possible, try to find a superordinate identity to build rapport. The, the, the problem though is that if someone doesn't want to have a conversation with you, they're simply not gonna have a conversation with you. There's not, nothing, there's literally nothing you can do about it. But as long as you're open and you've adopted that posture that you're willing to listen to someone and if on the, and, and then it, that's, that's the way to do to maintain, to use a word that you use to maintain your integrity. Um, the, the key there is that there's one phrase, Chris, that comes over, comes up over and over again when the people who are 
sucked into the ideology they've said to me, and that is you're on the wrong side of history. You're, if you hear someone tell you that you're on the wrong side of history, you are dealing with a very, someone who's all in. They're just complete. They're just all in. They're just so deep. They're all in. Okay. So that's the personal level. There are more things in the personal level we can talk to, but the idea is that you start from a position of listening. You offer to have conversations. Uh, you don't, um, don't wall up to people. Tell them right from the get-go, look, if there's an error in my reasoning, I want to know. Uh, if, if I've said something that's hurtful to people, I want to know because I don't want to be that person. I want to, I'm trying to like really take a, a kind of initial stance of vulnerability on yourself. Again, I'm not saying that will work, but I'm saying that if, if they accept the conversation, that's the posture to adopt. Okay. How's that clear so far? Yeah, good. Yeah. So, and, and to that, I, I might wonder if, um, if you could make the request and it's a tall request, go off social media for a week or two. <laughs> oh yeah. Social media is a talk. Yeah. TikTok in particular, but yeah, for, for younger yeah. people. That's one of the, the ways that the, the dysphoria spreads, you know, Jonathan Haidt's new work, he talks about, the dangers of social, of the, it's not the dangers of your phone, it's what you do on your phone. It's particularly mm -hmm. uh, social media. No one wants to talk about it because every there's this kind of weird gender egalitarianism. Oh, boys or girls are the same, what have you. No, no, no. It, it affects, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this literature, but from what I've seen from him, what other people have written, uh, it affects the teenage girls more than teenage boys. Okay, anyway. That's just, that's an aside. Okay, so that's the personal. The, the systems level, you have a few choices. You might be hesitant to leave the country. I'm not unsympathetic to that. I don't know where you'd go because this derangement is in most places in the world. I think Eastern Europe is like, it's not comedy show. Taiwan, I'll be going to Taiwan with Reed to make videos and they map on a different set of ideologies. It's kind of like Israel. Once there's an existential threat from an enemy, in this case, China, they have a different set of concerns and they view things differently. Okay. So from a systems level, you can leave. I know, I don't know a single person in some blue cities with blue mirrors. I'm trying not to make it political, but I'm just being honest with you who don't want to leave, who are in the middle class or upper middle class who aren't sick of it. They just want to leave the tent camping, the madness and it's in it's not just west coast cities it's everywhere it's philadelphia it's okay so you could move and you can vote with your feet and you can move to some some place that that um where was i, I was just uh I, I personally would not move to florida but you could move to florida it's too humid and everybody needs a car and i just don't like those kind of environments but mm -hmm. um, okay so let's say that let's say you, you want to bracket moving. You also want to be careful that you don't want to move into a, into a place in which you're physically surrounded by everybody who has the same beliefs as you, because then you're just duplicating the, a different set of problems. Maybe they're not as crazy. Maybe they are. It's difficult to say, but that's the danger of your belief becoming normative without having somebody of live, you know, questioner living in an echo echo chamber. Um, so then you have the two problem, the, the two approaches that I talked about before. You can either try to reform systems. I don't think that that's possible, particularly academic systems, because you have the additional barrier of people having tenure, which is a job for life. So how are you going to reform that? Right? Any school, by the way, who claims to be for free speech and open inquiry, you can, it's a very simple test for this. Do you have a DEI office? If you have a DEI office, you are not for free speech. The entire purpose of the DEI office is to limit your speech. That's literally the purpose of the DEI office. So 
don't believe them. University of Austin, of which I'm a founding faculty fellow, does not have a DEI office. And they're explicitly pro-free speech. Okay, so then you have the two approaches. You have the build new institutions, which is the approach that I take. I personally would like to see the existing system crumble, but whether or not it crumbles, it's fine because it will take a long time to build new institutions. The problem is that if you have old institutions that are teaching people things that are false or divisive or dangerous, those people get out in the workforce and then they bring trigger, Jordan Peterson has made this point, I've made this point repeatedly. They bring what they've learned in the academy, trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions. There's simply no evidence for this. In fact, Scott Lillenfield's 2017 piece, <clears throat> Mike, <clears throat> excuse me, microaggression, strong claims and adequate evidence. Anybody can look that up. Okay. <clears throat> and I do want to stress again, don't believe Chris Martinson, don't believe Peter Bogosian, don't believe anybody. Look up the data yourself. I've pointed in this interview through several sources, several individuals you can look. There are books you can read. You need to educate yourself. Okay, so again, what do you do about it? So then you have the systems level. You have the level of should we build new institutions? Should we burn them down? Should we try to reform the existing institutions? <clears throat> that's, a, that's not a question I can answer. That's whatever your personal disposition is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then I want to say one final thing that's just extraordinarily important. And I realize that in my saying this, I'm going to seem, I don't know, pedantic or academic or what have you. The most important thing you can do by far, without any question at all, is to learn the meanings of words. I know that sounds crazy, but you have to learn when people who participate in the ideology use certain words, they mean certain things. They do not mean the things that you and I mean when we're sitting around having a beer or a glass of wine over dinner. We mean very different things than they mean. And if you don't know what they mean, for example, by inclusion or by belonging, these words sound really well. This is how you get suckered. This is, in my opinion, and, and others such as, um, you know, Andrew Doyle has become a cl close friend of mine. He's Titania McGrath. Who, he has a, 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 um, a wonderful show, you know, pr principal liberal people like Helen Pluckrose also. So I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not in the wilderness shouting this out. There are people who mm -hmm. move in this space very actively who agree with me that the number one thing that you can do for yourself is to figure out what people mean by words and become educated. And if your kid is, you know, again, there are other things we can go to, you know, if, if your kid is suffering from gender dysphoria or claiming they're suffering from gender dysphoria, there are resources out there for parents and there are resources out for you. But you, you have to educate yourself for this. You can't just walk through and hope everything's going to be fine and quote unquote believe the experts on this stuff. It's just, that's just, to do that would be just, it's just madness to me. It is madness. And of course, we learned that in the context of many things, including COVID, where, where this, so I'm, and I'm a scientist, Peter. So at one point, we switched seamlessly during early COVID, where a case was somebody who had been detected through PCR to have had a fragment of this virus, whether it was replication competent or not. Whereas for my entire life, all of my training, a case was somebody who was medically um, impacted to the point that they had to seek out treatment. When did that change, right? An infection is different from a case, is different from a ICU. Like, like there were these, the words used to mean something. So that was one of the things I saw. And when I see the most important base words becoming distorted, that's when I know I'm up against some form of dishonesty, right? There's something running here that is, it's not about being accurate. Yeah, it's either an intentional dishonesty or it's, 
it, it, it's a profound ignorance. But again, think about how, how sneaky that is. Think about how, and, and I'm not even saying, I, so I do think that, that a lot of it is dishonest because when I, when I watch people talk, people in the academy, professors talk, who want to for the, I can see how they move from the common meaning of the term to the other meaning of the term. Like I can, I see it in their talks when they want to say things that are palatable to people to influence public policy, they use what's called uh, the MOT. And when they don't, they use what's called the Bailey. So you can look that up, Jim. You can also go to new discourses if you want more. So, um, mm-hmm. so you, you, you have to educate yourself you have to realize that there's an entire system out there from the system of healthcare, the medical system. You can't get published, for example, in major journal scientific American is captured. The whole society has been captured by an ideology. Nobody's ever heard of nobody ever heard of this stuff 10 years ago. And now it's, it's everywhere. And you also have to be suspicious. If you cannot question a tenant of the ideology, what does that tell you about the ideology? That should be you should instantly, <laughs> suspicious of that yeah mm-hmm. it's brittle and because it's brittle you have to have mechanisms of enforcement to make sure the ideology isn't dislodged dei uh, compliance industries bias response teams you have to have political correctness you have to have ways to enforce the moral orthodoxy because the moral orthodoxy is the moral orthodoxy if, if there was evidence it wouldn't be the moral orthodoxy it would just be scientific but there is no evidence. This stuff is not falsifiable. It's not scientific. It's, it, it's just the musings of ideologues over decades who have published voluminous mountains of literature on, they have manufactured whole cloth, entire lines of academic literature. We have based public policies upon these things. And now here we are. So, you know, the question, what do you want to do about it? Well, you have to become educated about it. At a root level, you have to understand the meanings of words. I have a thing on my YouTube channel, Peter Bogosian, in which I give, it takes 60 seconds. And then you have to, you can listen to some, there are some great podcasts. If you don't like to read, that's great. You can, there's some really high quality information out there. You can go, you can listen to different things. If you like to read, you can read articles, you can read books. But the idea that you would not be educated about what's happening and just be angry about this. What do you like five? No, what do you, what do you in junior high school? No, you, you have to, you have to take some kind of responsibility and maybe not at a social level, but certainly in your own epistemological and intellectual life, you have to figure out what's going on. Well, you do. And, and, but this has been highly disorienting for me as, as, as we come into the close here. And I'll tell you why, because my whole life, for good or bad, the United States has had a religion and it's been a central religion and everybody practices it and it's called money. Um, you know, it's it's the highest religion. And I know that because, oh, my gosh, we're going to listen to Ray Dalio because he's rich, you know, and and, uh, you know, might be a smart guy. But I watched the pantheon of people we're supposed to pay attention to is it's money. So there it is. And then somehow while I wasn't looking, I watched. And this is also the good bet. I love this part. Uh, Bud Light. Torched its brand. Disney, busy self-immolating itself on its wokeness. Um, you know, watching Oliver Anthony's, you know, heartfelt song sort of crush through. It and none of those are organized boycotts. Those were just organic right. pushbacks against this this thing that's trying to take over everything. But back to my point, watching companies torch their shareholders and their profits and still say the most important thing is doing what they're doing. That means that religion is more powerful than the religion of money. Correct. Correct. That's 100% correct. 
because it is a universal solvent. Once it's in, it corrupts thinking, it corrupts, it, it's, it, you're correct. It is an overriding ideology. So that's why it's so fascinating that this, the canary in the coal mine was the atheist movement and the skeptical movement. A religion arose within the atheist movement who is explicitly anti-religious. And so once this ideology gets in, it just corrodes and it, I mean, it, it, again, and I really want to stress in this conversation, it's not just that it corrodes our institutions that are necessary for the functioning of civil society, but it corrodes our interpersonal relationships. And, and you, you need to view this through both lenses. Well, we do. And, and it, it's, uh, that's going to be an, an ongoing topic of conversation. I hope we can have again soon, which is uh, about the corrosiveness of it. I've been watching it um, obviously impact friendships, but but I think it's corroding much more than that. Um, and, and so I'm very worried about the direction of our country. And so I agree with you. Let's start with making sure we're educated. We know what we're up against. You're doing great work. Uh, James, you know, James Lindsay has been doing fabulous work, but but we have to get the concepts around this. So I'm so glad there is some pushback around this. Uh, at Peter Bogosian on Twitter, you've got your YouTube channel. Where else can people find you? And what are you up to? Well, what am I up to? Well, I have a thing coming up with Schellenberger. It's kind of, uh, we've been working on a long time. I mentioned that. I have a, I go around the world and I do street epistemology with my friend Reed Nicewonder from, he's the president of Street Epistemology International. You can find those videos. And I ask people, I try to facilitate conversations across divides um, based upon my, my book, Hot Having Possible Conversations. And I talk to people about things that have, uh, nobody wants to talk about. So I, I, I find that to be interesting. I'm going to be traveling all over the world for the next two years, nonstop, pretty much from one country to the next. I'll be in Bratislava, Taiwan. I'm going back to London again. So I'll, I'll be doing that. So if anybody wants to find me, my, I'm the executive director. I do the, all this stuff is for my nonprofit national progress Alliance. Uh, and you know, I don't make a ton of ton of money on this. So anybody who wants to contribute to the resources that enables me, since I resigned my job at Portland State University, it enables me to do this. And so we're very responsible with our funding. So that would be appreciated if anybody would would um, help facilitate our work. So thank you. Right? Absolutely. Conversation, Chris, thanks. Well, thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. And for everybody listening, we'll put those links below so you can find Peter and his work and um, help support uh, this incredible work. So Peter, thanks again. Thanks, Chris, appreciate it.